are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Good morning, everyone. Meg Riley here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where spring is finally truly here. I think no more frosts. We had one last week and I think we're done. So getting ready to put out some more plants. Um, anyway, it's a gorgeous day here. How are you, Christina? Hi, everyone. Uh, Christina Rivera coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia. It's a beautiful spring day. I'm really, really excited to finally see spring here. I was able to sit out on the on the patio for a little bit yesterday, and it actually got too warm. Yay! Very excited for that. It's been a long time coming. How's it going with you, Michael? Good morning, everyone. Michael Tino here in Peekskill, New York, where it is also a beautiful spring day, and um, it should be warm enough to plant the tomatoes this weekend, which makes me very happy. And um, my daughter went outside to pick dandelions in the backyard uh, just a few moments ago and is currently having a fit because I will not interrupt my appearance on The View to make her dandelion tea. So that, that's what's going on here. How are things on the West Coast, Asia? Hi, I'm Aisha Hauser, and I'm in Seattle, Washington. It's it's a typical Seattle rainy day, but the last few days before today, we, it was 80. So it was spring-like. And Meg, as soon as you said the frost was over, I'm like, you're forgetting it's 2020. Some bonkers things have been happening. So I, I don't know that I put the, wait a, wait a week maybe before you put the plants in. I was like, oh, she just jinxed it. There it is. I don't know, 2020, you're getting the murder hornets or you're getting the polar vortex. You just it, don't know, man. It snowed here know. last weekend. <laughs> right. So that's me. And we're doing the roundup. So I'll start with Thrive, the Multicultural Leadership School. The registration for online Thrive is open for youth of color. Uh, it gets ninth to 12th grade. And um, it'll be exciting. They have uh, Sarah Green, Reverend Sarah Green is the director, and she is very, very excited about the programming this summer. Antonia? Oh, um, hi. <laughs> I'm Antonia. Oh, hello. <laughs> I meant to say, hi, Antonia. How are you? I'm fine. COVID brain. I'm blaming everything on COVID brain. I hear you, friend. I'm Antonia. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, and I haven't been outside, so I have no idea what weather it is, the shades are shut. Um, and I will be over on, oh, Sana said it, it's sunny in Philadelphia, so it's probably sunny in Delaware too. I'll be over on YouTube collecting your um, questions and comments and getting them over to the host. And so make sure to ask what you wanna ask and we'll hopefully be able to answer them all in this hour. And uh, we're rounding up. So anyone else want to talk about what's happening in the world? So I'm really excited that today we'll be bringing uh, people from the UU Ministers Association to talk about ethics and accountability. And I just wanna say how important conversations like this are, that we live in a, those of us in the US live in a country where there is no accountability. There is no accountability for murder. And we've watched this week as too many names of, Black people living their lives, running, sleeping, living, have been shot down by police with no accountability. So I just wanna say how important it is that we try to do something different and that we can get into the weeds with really small fights, but I think, you know, especially in this time of COVID where the impact economically and physically is so disparate for different communities, we are not having the same pandemic and where family life and church life and every other part of life is profoundly different for people of color. So I just, just wanna say how glad I am that you all are here to talk from the UUMA and, to, and that this is not a small conversation. This is trying to find balance and health in a really unbalanced, unhealthy world. So thank you to all of you who are here today. Any other hosts want to um, shout out before we start bringing in the guests? Yeah, I think um, we want to just acknowledge that many, many of us um, 
are dealing with the collective broken heart uh, mourning with our colleague uh, Kim Walchewski and her spouse Tara. Um, Kim serves our congregation in Washington Crossing, New Jersey, and uh, their two-year-old son Malcolm uh, died this week um, very suddenly. Uh, and uh, their grief is unspeakable, and um, everyone who cares for them is mourning alongside them. It's it's just really horrible. So we we send our collective love to them. You know, and I think that the powerful sense of collectivity around that love has been profound this week. And it said to me who we can be with each other as people of faith, as colleagues, as professionals, that we, that I, I don't know Kim, but I sobbed about that death. So thanks, Michael. So anyone else before we launch in? Christina, were you gonna say something? I was just going to reflect that, um, that, you know, we are most profound in our, we, I see the most profound outrage um, over the racism in, in the United States when we see video, you know, of, of these um, lynchings um, that are happening in our communities and, and we see a groundswell around that. And I just want to reflect back to folks that it is the everyday racism that also kills. Um, and particularly, I'm thinking around um, different states and communities who are reopening, um, in my opinion, prematurely, and probably in the opinion of a lot of <laughs> epidemiologists as well, um, because it isn't people with privilege that are going to um, die from those reopenings. Uh, they, it may be, but it will disproportionately affect and kill um, black and brown people. I'm just gonna name it. And so, um, you know, I think that we need to, as, as a faith, um, remember that and see the areas in which we can advocate for the folks that are more, most vulnerable um, in a capitalist society, because uh, it, it's not folks with privilege. Meg, can I also name that um, the Babies and Bailouts and the National Bailout um, Initiative raised more money this year than they ever have. And so that is very um, good news for uh, especially moms who are able to get back to their children. Um, and it also, I think, has shed light and, and more and more people are learning about how awful um, the bail system, the cash bail system, well, and our it's part of the abolition movement, the uh, prison abolition movement. So that's also, I think, good news. And shout out to the UUs who worked on that. We had them on the show and yeah, really such good work. So today we have the UU Ministers Association. Um, member uh, Melissa Carvel-Zemer, who is the executive, one of the co-executive directors. I, actually, I'm gonna butcher that because I don't have it written here, um, but, um, is that right? Co-executive director? Is that how you say it? Co-president? We're, we're the co-directors and in particular, I'm the director of ministries for collegial care. Okay, great. Um, let's see. You know what? I'm going to let people introduce themselves. So I don't do that for everybody so that you can say your own titles and everything. Um, but we are, we are really delighted. We had conversation about this last year and um, you will remember that a draft of new accountability guidelines is in the works, and now lots of people have talked about it, and, and it's back again. There's more conversation. So we've got a number of guests, and you know what? I'm just going to have you go around and introduce yourselves before we go any further. Melissa, you want to say anything more? Julika. Hi, I'm Julica Herman de la Fuente, and I am here in my UUMA intern capacity. I've been doing a lot of the background support work for the study guide and for the um, annual packet that went out last week. I'm really excited about this project. How about you, Walter? Good morning. Good to be with you all. Um, I'm on the UUMA board with the portfolio of anti-racism and anti-oppression multiculturalism. 
and I was the board liaison to the ethics committee. And I'm excited by the work we've been doing and uh, have my fingers crossed for the changes we're in hopeful of. Good to be with you this morning. I'm uh, Matthew Johnson. I'm the minister of our congregation in Rockford, Illinois, um, where it is raining all day today, uh, but the flowers are happy. I'm a member of the accountability committee um, and uh, Paul Langston Daly is the chair of our committee. Um, and uh, I've done a lot of the revising based on comments. So I'm here to talk about that with you all today. Let's start with ethics committee, accountability committee. Can each of you describe exactly what those committees are and how they're different and how they work together? Walter, you want to start? I don't. Um, <laughs> ethics, I don't even know that I know how to talk about it clearly in terms of distinctions, but fundamentally the ethics group is about establishing our um, standards of expectations for collegiality among ministers. And the accountability piece is the piece that has more, I'll let you, Matthew, speak more clearly to it. Um, but we, we set the guidelines um, of what we expect from ministers, what we agree to be in covenant with each other around. Um, and Matthew, talk about the accountability piece, if you would. Yeah, so the accountability is what happens when those expectations of conduct are not met by the members of the UUMA. Um, so the Ministers Association, um, uh, you know, says, here's what, how we expect ministers to treat other ministers. Um, here's how we expect ministers to act in congregations and act in the world. Um, and if you don't meet those expectations, what do we do about that? And the accountability piece is what we do about that. Um, when those expectations are not met, and how do we get back into covenant if possible uh, when uh, we have become out of our covenant? Thank you. Melissa, you want to kind of frame this and how did it start and why and just the bigger picture? Thank Step you. I was just thinking about that for those who might not be aware of what is the what's the whole container in which to understand these changes. So the, the UMA has had uh, guidelines and code of conduct for a long time. So there's a lot of history, but I, I want to just name some recent history. In 2017, we had a pivotal board meeting of the UMA in which we, we finally came to the conclusion that it was, it was time for significant change in those guidelines. And at that meeting, we determined that, the, that, change, that significant changes were necessary for us as a minister's association to live into our professed commitment to working to be an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural minister's association. So very specifically at that meeting, we determined that the changes that we needed were broad enough that we couldn't just have one guidelines committee, which had often been the case in prior years when these guidelines are decades old and they've evolved over the decades and generally with one committee at a time working on one piece to update them. And we said, we really need two committees because we have to do significant work. And we charged those committees, the ethics committee and the accountability committee with working to strengthen the language in the guidelines to express our commitment to work against white supremacy culture, heteropatriarchy and other systems and structures of oppression in our relationships with each other and in our practice of ministry, which is of course our, how we bring uh, our ministry out into our congregations, communities, and into the world. And I just wanna name that our understanding as leaders in the UMA is that these changes are long overdue and they're reparative, not radical, that we've needed these changes for a long time. They're significant and it took a lot of work, that was three years ago, but that the work is really reparative in order to bring our guidelines into alignment, closer alignment with our values and with our expression of our faith. So that's a, that's a bit of the container. And of course, there's, there's future too. And maybe we'll come to talk about that as well and some of the work um, that a collaborative team of us are doing regarding a common ethics panel. But in between the past and the future, that's the kind of current container. So question. Oh, go ahead, Aisha. Well, I, I was, um, if I heard you correctly, Matthew, you named uh, that there's 
um, I don't know if they're separate and I don't know if they're meant to be separate, but here's how ministers need to treat each other. And here's how ministers need to be with congregations. And I'm curious about why they would be different. They're, they're, they're not different um, uh, per se. The, the code of conduct, um, which is the ethics committee's work that has said what the code is, um, includes all of that. It includes our expectations for how we behave. Um, and Walter can speak more about what's in the revisions and what's in the current. And this has been updated many, many times, as Melissa said, over the generations to say, here's how we expect um, us to act in line with our values and our commitments um, and how we act with others and in the world and in our congregations. The accountability procedures, we as a minister's association have a responsibility for accountability for how our members act. The minister's association does not have authority over how congregations act or how people who are not members of the minister's association act. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is one of the biggest challenges is the diffuse responsibility um, and diffuse accountability. So to the extent that we can be clear about what we can hold one another accountable for, um, that clarity hopefully spills out. And that's one of the longer term projects that Melissa just mentioned about trying to get a more shared religious professional and religious leader um, understanding of accountability. Um, but we need to be clear about what we can do in terms of our accountability to one another um, but our rules do talk about not just how we treat one another. But the other thing I'll say is the biggest question that really came up over the last year, I think this is appropriate here, is the question of whether it was the minister's association's responsibility to do accountability at all. Are we a, you know, a professional development organization that does continuing education and advocates for our members and accountability is solely the job of the UUA or the individual congregations or employers? Um, and I think it's a real question. And our answer was that for more than a generation, um, we have understood the ministers as having a role in accountability for its members. And we believe that continues to be important. The answer of who holds us accountable is all of the above. Congregations have a role, the UA has a role, the ministers have a role with each other, the other professional organizations have a role with their own members and hopefully more and more in collaboration together. We all have a role to play. So we're trying to be better at our role um, so that it, that spreads out to everybody. Before we dive into specifics, and this is for any or all of you, what would be your hope for the culture change that would come about as a result of the changes? Well, one specific hope for our cult, the, the culture change that I think we're hoping that we live into and, and building skills to live into is that we understand that there is no um, there is no there is no perfection. That the work of right relationship is an ongoing process. It's an art and a skill and a practice, and that there's not ever going to be a time where one of us achieves at some kind of um, state in which we are never going to make mistakes that 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 what we understand is that that's going to that we are always learning and growing and that the work of repairing those mistakes when they happen is um is a muscle that we can develop and a skill that we can practice and that that is um that the more that we do that with each other then the more that we can bring that into our ministries and then the more that the people that that, that spreads out that has a ripple effect so that's one I think also from an ethics perspective, I think where our effort is to take away as much ambiguity as possible and make a distinction between we would like you to, as a minister, to you're obligated to, as a minister. And they're not the same. We really want to pull out as much um, space for people to hide in corners. Um, and we want to level the playing field and uh, we want to hold up um, our obligations to each other and to our profession. Yeah, I would uh, echo those things and, and say for the accountability team, the culture change is 
the capacity to do right relationship and repair. Um, right now, the existing rules, um, if it's kind of a minor matter, there's not much you can sort of do. And, um, and yet if it's huge, there's not always enough of a remedy, but there's a sort of one kind of answer. And so what we have created is a whole menu of options because each situation is different. The relationship between the people is different. Um, so, you know, I think of this as moving from a kind of a weak Kantian approach to a rich Aristotelian approach, um, if that's the kind of thing you're into. But to really think about what is the story happening? What's the reality of the relationships between the people? And how can covenant be restored if it can be restored? And if it can't be restored, then how do we ensure public safety, um, the integrity of our ministry and our institutions, um, and the living out of our values? Um, the current way of thinking prioritizes um, things like confidentiality, um, and the new proposal prioritizes the integrity of our ministry, public safety, um, and these kinds of an honesty and truth telling. Um, the secrets, the inability to deal with things openly, the withdrawing from the table of relationship of saying, no, I don't want to talk about how you feel hurt. Um, I'm just not going to engage that conversation. We're taking away that option. You're going to be part of the association of ministers. You need to be at the table. The piece that I would add about culture change is that our current guidelines minimize difference and don't talk about power. So they talk about colleagues and collegial relationships as if we are all the same. And that's not true. So acknowledging our social identities and our hierarchical positions in relationship with each other, acknowledging how power can be abused, that's really important. And it hadn't been done and and that's what these revisions are doing so that's a that's a exciting culture change for me because it moves our anti-racism and anti-oppression conversations from the interpersonal i'm a good person i'm an ally it moves it to our policies and procedures so that's an organizational shift it's like the uuma is catching up at an organizational level to where we need to be i think that's a big deal So I know that uh, a draft went to GA last year and, and then it was going to go out to chapters for discussions and revisions and conversations. So again, for anyone, I'm curious, you know, what that significant came through from that and, and were there in fact, because one of the fears we heard expressed was it won't really be discussed. There really won't be an opportunity. So how did that go? I can share that it was discussed um, uh, richly at a lot of the chapters and cluster meetings. Um, and at my chapter had a nice conversation about it and people gathered and really dove into it. We presented a set of um, discussion guides and questions and uh, things to wrestle with concrete situations and how they would go through this. And then the UMA set up an opportunity for people to give uh, feedback and um, between the two forums, I think there was, you know, hundreds of comments, uh, probably thousands of comments from hundreds of people about the, the feedback. Um, and so we got lots of conversation about it. Um, and I can share what the accountability committee changed between the first draft and the second draft um, and sort of the, the big highlights. Um, they're important changes. They're not substantial changes to the general structure of the change that we're making to focus more on covenant, repairing covenant, clarity of accountability. Um, but we did make some important changes from the first draft to the second. Um, some of them were um, important, but deal with a small set of ministers, including language that um, more clearly includes our Canadian colleagues who are members of the UUMA, even though they have a different denominational um, office. Um, and uh, you know, UA staff, a few other um, things like that. One of the bigger um, clarifications was to make clear that the accountability procedures come into play when someone has violated the covenant, the ethics committee's work. They're not when someone has a generalized experience of harm. So one of the worries was that someone could say, you can, harm can be weaponized, right? And so if it doesn't 
come from the ethics um, section, then it doesn't get into the accountability procedures. There may need to be relationship repair um, and work on healing, but the accountability procedures only get activated when there's been a violation of the covenant. Can, I'm I'm getting a little lost in that. So, okay. What, okay. what would be a one that wouldn't and one that would? Uh... Well, you'd have to point to somewhere in the ethics um, section in the code to say this has been the violation. Um, you know, so if it's, you know, um, you know, I didn't like the way they did a thing, you know, or something, something hurt my feelings. Now it might be, I mean, you have to look and see, you know, if it's a pattern of oppressive behavior, well, that would be a violation of the covenant. Um, but it's, you have to point to the covenant um, is, is the key. Sexual harassment is an example of something that would fall under this That's right. um, unacceptable behavior. That's right. That's right. Um, because it's in the code that that's not permitted, right? The code is your stuff, Walter. Am I getting this right? I'm not just pretending to be stupid. I'm <laughs> trying to understand this. We've, so been swimming in this we've been swimming in this mud and we continue to have these issues. <laughs> Yes, I think our, the, the code really is the designed to um, delineate how we will be with each other and what our obligations to our profession and to the denomination is. Um, and I think part of, well, there are a few different things to say about it. Um, and needless to say, we can take it in 73 different directions. But I think the upgrading that we're doing is to take out ambiguity. I think we also want to take out those areas that are shadow. In other words, um, the way things have been written in the past, it allows people to hide behind some of the words so that they don't have to take responsibility for their behavior. Um, and I, that was one of the things that I found particularly painful to, to discover in a very real sense. Let me give you an example. Um, if, if I do sexual abuse, for example, and someone names it, a colleague names it, um, that I'm, according to our historic verbiage, I can rely on the section that says, thou shall not speak ill of a colleague. So if they are speaking ill about me, I can essentially find a, a, a corner to hide in. And instead of having to be accountable for my behavior, I can turn, the, um, turn things around and make the problem be the speaker. Um, and that's the kind of thing that inadvertently or intentionally was in our ethics. And we want to take away those kinds of um, ways to use um, our, our ethics against each other. And there are also issues of how do you manage uh, the power differentials between colleagues. So there are just all sorts of things we needed to clarify. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think that points in the direction of our intention. Because I think that, you know, at CLF, so many people come because they've been harmed somewhere. And I can't listen to their stories pastorally. And that's really hard without, I mean, I can't say things back to them, well, that like that, that was wrong, uh, without violating the covenant. So I always pass them to somebody who's not ordained, and it's stupid, but that's what I have to do, basically. And so I'm really glad to hear that, because you know, I could take it up with the colleague, but then it becomes this huge deal. And so I think what Matthew said earlier about it's either a huge deal or no deal is has been my lived experience of what we've had. So I would love to get to more human, interactive, as Melissa said, never perfect, but always trying to get a little better kind of um, interactions. Um, is, so the code sets kind of the bar for where it gets more formalized. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. The code says what our expectations of one another are um, and, uh, and, and what we were supposed to do. 
the second big change the accountability committee made, and, and maybe Melissa can talk about this, is that originally we had thought about a, a new office, a, something called the Right Relations Guide. Um, but instead, uh, the leadership thought that there was a real good way to um, reorganize and revitalize the good officer program. The good officers are uh, ministers who um, help one another um, through situations. Um, and and so there's some really exciting work in terms of creating specialties for those good officers. And so instead of creating a new office, we're talking about a good officer with a specialty and right relationship. But Melissa might want to say more about that reorganization because I think it could be really profoundly helpful to ministers and congregations and other employers. Thanks, Matthew. I, I'd just like to preface this by saying that one of the one of the values that we have here is not perfection, but rather um, engaging in processes that are emergent and iterative. And by emergent, I mean like we, it, we are emerging into it, we're creating it together. And by iterative, I mean it's going to keep getting better through action and reflection. Um, and then we'll know more about what it is that needs to be in uh, what, what we're creating and how we live into it. And so the changes in the good offices ministry are in that fashion, and they are, um, they're at the very beginning stages where we've just shared this vision casting that we've begun to do. The Good Offices Coordinating Team has been working on this for several years, and we welcome this opportunity to bring what was imagined as a new, a whole new office within the structure of Good Offices, because we had been thinking about creating specializations within Good Offices anyway. Without getting too much into the weeds, I'll just say that part of the job of good offices, the ministry role that good offices um, occupies is to provide care, support, and accountability for ministers. And there's so many things that are part of that. There's pastoral care and chaplaincy, there's negotiating contracts, there's mediating conflicts, there's helping people sort out systems dynamics. And part of what we've understood as we've been doing a more thorough assessment of good offices over the last few years is that not everybody feels equally called to all those roles or equally interested in all those roles or skilled in them. And so by creating specializations, we can more fully honor the talents and capacities and limitations of the volunteers who take up these roles, but also then hopefully provide um, richer support to the people seeking that support because they have that chance to interact with somebody who it's really their passion and they've done a lot of learning in this particular area. So the, the, the specialization for the right relationship guides is one that we're excited about creating because we think it's really an opportunity for us all to, um, as I said earlier, to bring the practice of right relationship to the forefront and to get away from this like right, wrong, I'm going to prove who's right and then I'm going to punish who's wrong, but rather like how do we work toward repair restoration, healing, and justice in our relationships. Julika, so, I know you do a lot of the process. Um, you know, uh, you did such a great job last year at GA. And I, I'm just curious, you know, you've been kind of working with the study guides and the, how to have conversations about this. What have you learned and what can you share? Well, I actually served as a right relations guide in a particular um, situation this past year. And what I learned in serving in that role is that the move away from legalistic to restorative and reparative frees you up to be really pastoral to everyone involved. And so I, I really appreciated the experience because when you have some clear parameters around, let us center the people who were harmed. Let us give the people who were harmed as much agency and ability to decide what happens next as possible. But then let's take care of the person who did the harming and who is mortified and wants to improve and restore right relationship and also respond pastorally to them and bring them along in a under coaching and understanding of what could have been done differently, what needs to be done now, how to repair the relationship. It was, it was, it was such a relief. It was, it was so good to feel like everyone could be included and return back to the circle. And the other thing I learned is that it takes a lot of time. It's, there's a lot of iteration 
you have a lot of conversations. It's not a one and done. It's how are you feeling now? And how, how is it sitting with you now? Do you need something different now than you needed six weeks ago? How's it going? Um, but when you feel true healing happening, there's just this sense of alignment with it. You just feel like, oh, this is good. This is right. Like this, this is how we want to be. And so it was a powerful experience for me. So that's, that's what I would share about that in particular. And I, I also, I guess the other thing I want to say is it's not rocket science. We all have these skills. We just hide behind these other rules and other ways of being because this other work requires us to be more authentic and vulnerable with each other. But this is actually what's going to free us from white supremacy culture habits and from this pretending. So often ministers pretend with each other in ways that is like, what are you doing? Like, like our colleagues are the people that save us. This is where we can actually get the support, not just our ministerial colleagues, but our religious professional colleagues as well. Like if we can't be real about the challenge of ministry and about the challenge of this work with each other and make room for forgiveness and make room for growth, then what are we doing? So all of that. I think that goes to um, one of the questions that uh, that we have in the chat from uh, Nadidi Yashevi around um, the practice of if I'm a woman of color and my minister does not share, you know, one of those identities um, and I want to be ministered to by um, one of their colleagues, maybe it's a colleague at another congregation, um, maybe it's a minister in my cluster, um, you know, and the process around that right now is, um, is complicated and it feels like I, I have to ask permission to do that um, in order to, you know, and it can be like, why am I having to ask permission to, to have my needs met in a way that, um, that helps me? And um, I think it goes to some of that, what Julika was talking about, it, it's really not about me and getting my needs met. It's around the relationship between those two um, ordained clergy colleagues and how power has expressed itself in those relationships in the past. Um, and, and somehow, you know, congregants are getting caught up in that expression of power. Um, and, um, and so if I'm hearing you all correctly, um, this process that, that you all are talking about and these guidelines and, and codes of conduct that you all are talking about would maybe allow for a little bit more expansive um, ability for for um, for folks to get their needs met in a different way. Um, can can you say whether or not I'm kind of on the right track on that, or um, if if we should be looking for something different? Yeah. So I just read the the section in the code um, that deals with this, and I I think there's a lot of um, shorthand that ministers have used to describe the code, which is not always accurate. So in some case, what the ethics committee has done is remove the sentences or passages which have led to the shorthand, like I shall not speak ill, which, which it doesn't actually say, says I shall not speak derogatorily in public. But we've put in new words that um, have a very different kind of uh, purpose. But in this case, um, so the congregant is relatively free to do whatever they need to do. It is the obligation of the other minister that they have reached out to, to speak with the minister who is serving them as their parish minister, perhaps, or in other context, to be in covenant minister to minister about providing excellence in ministry to that person who is in need. So the, what the rule says is, is that the person, um, if you're not serving that context and someone from that context reaches out to you, um, you need to be in covenant with the minister um, who is serving them. And because of the new language that the ethics committee has put in about the importance of being in that anti-racist, multicultural, anti-oppressive mode, I think there's a real place where the, the code would say, you, if, so if I'm serving, you know, I, I got a 
a uh, number of folks of color in my congregation, and they have reached out to other ministers um, where, with whom they share an identity uh, for connection and support. And those ministers have said to me, hey, I'm chatting with you know, so-and-so because um, they reached out to me. And I say, that's great. I am so glad that we can be a team together. So that is the model that we seek and I think that we lay out and that's the expectation. So if a minister says, you know, I, I have the ability to say no, um, and they do that sort of aggressively in order to prevent the, their congregants from reaching out to others, then that, that itself could be an issue that we seek to form some right relationship and better understanding and healing on. So it's more of a growth model rather than a right or wrong model. Um, and so understanding like one of the best things about being a EU minister is that you don't actually have to do it alone. And the Lone Ranger kind of model um, is super problematic for a whole host of reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the long list we could get into about who that really was and what the real story was that that was stolen from. Um, but that idea that we're in it by ourselves is, is wrong. We're in it together. And what happens in my congregation affects what happens in your congregation um, and what happens to our people and so that we work together as a team. Um, so it's not the congregant who needs to seek permission. It's important to, to say that. But it, Matthew, it, it sounds like we're moving away from this understanding of seeking permission toward an understanding of being in covenant too. And that's, that's a really important distinction, Yes. right? Is that, um, you know, if someone like comes to me because like I'm a queer minister and they are struggling with something and their minister is straight and cisgender, like I don't have to ask their minister before I talk to them, but I have to like actually have an open dialogue and relationship with their minister so that it's not a secret um what what's going on and that's a that's a very different dynamic yes. that that we're talking about that that's absolutely right and the the code already indicates the importance for colleagues serving in the same geography to be in touch but as we're seeing now in this pandemic geography matters less and less i mean i have congregants who worship three times on sunday they worship with the sarasota congregation um, Sarasota Springs, and then with mine, and then with one on the West Coast, and I just love it. And so I should be in covenant with the minister serving those congregations, and I am, because we're all members of the UUMA, and that is a covenant that binds us together. And the other thing, Michael, that your comment makes me think of is we have really emphasized, and the ethics panel, ethics committee has too, the importance of clear additional covenants between colleagues serving in the same location, um, serving the same setting. So co-ministers, associate and assistant ministers, uh, ministers who are serving together, affiliate, community ministers who are part of a congregation, ministers emeritus, folks need to have a rich, particular covenant. There is no more dangerous waters uh, than these places when there is no clear expectations and covenants and good communication, especially when the ministers serving in those identities have different Certain of those same settings have different identities and power relationships. And if you are not super clear and explicit and honest and iterative and growing and adapting, um, that can go very badly for everybody and harm the congregation and the ministers and the movement. So we have really emphasized the absolute importance of those clear covenants um, between colleagues um, and uh, because it's much harder to fix afterwards. It's much better to be proactive and not to assume that goodwill and good intentions are sufficient. We should know this by now, um, but we still think, well, if I have a good intention, then everything will be fine. And we should be less naive. I, also I, just think, I think that, that power that. around who has to ask for, um, who has to ask for permission and who is allowed to give permission um, is different when we're talking about covenant. And, and I'm glad that you said that because it's not a permission asking. It's a, it's a like, hey, I'm in covenant with you. So I'm going to give you, you know, a heads up that I'm providing pastoral care to somebody that is also in a pastoral care situation with you. And, and that's very different than having to ask for permission to provide pastoral care to someone. And, um, and so I think it's, it's super um, important and I'm so glad that you all are framing it uh, around coven covenant and, and framing it around that because it's, it's that relationship that we're trying to protect, right? We're, we're not 
trying to protect power. Um, and, and so I think that is where um, I, I'm just really thrilled with, with what y'all are doing. So thank you. And Walter, I'm sorry, we started well, both talking. That's fine, sorry. I want to just tag on to that and, and say that part of the dynamic shift that we're looking for and the dismantling of supremacy is that historically, for example, if there's a community minister, the expectations of community minister has obligations to the settled minister. And we want to be clear that the settled minister has obligations also to that community minister. It is not a one-way street. Um, and that the junior minister, if you will, hey, uh, poor language, um, has more responsibility to the quote-unquote senior man. We're, we're really trying to take away that, that power differential and, that, um, and, and make this more collegial and more collaborative. Well, and in some ways, Walter, when someone has that seniority, you have more obligation because you have more power in the system, right? It's not even that the, the, the other folks have more obligation to respect your turf, but like you as this, if you have a senior minister designation, like you, you actually have power in the system that other people don't, and that comes with obligation. And you're obligated to be supportive, exactly. So these are really complicated things and GA is going to be, and ministry days are going to be online this year. And I'm curious um, how that, you know, how that works. And if people are pressuring you to put a pause on this now uh, because of the pandemic and, and, you know, I'm sure that you've thought a lot about the different situation than we thought we'd be in this year. What, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you. I'd like to say a word and then invite Julika to, to add some more words. So there are some particular answers to that that I'm hoping you'll speak to, Julika. But in terms of the larger frame, I just want to go back to the top of the show and some comments that, that many of you, our hosts, made about how we're not all having the same pandemic. And um, yesterday, I read a, a blog post from Beth Sensky, who's an anti-racist, anti-oppressive organizer and trainer. She I'm sorry. That. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that she said, which many others have said as well, but um, that I just want to name is that any crisis in this pandemic in particular exposes structural oppression in ways that were all, always there, but makes them, you know, makes them perhaps more plain to more people than they were before the moment of crisis. And she argues in her post that it is in moments of crisis and disruption when we become um, uh, the public more wide, more becomes more um, informed about the systemic injustices and oppressions that were always there and are maybe perhaps some folks seeing them anew or for the first time, that that is exactly the time to work towards systemic change because it creates an opening in which people's um, maybe minds are open or hearts are open in, in a new way or for the first time that gives you some leverage to move forward. So that's not exactly the case in this situation. This work has been gone going for a long time, but I just want to name that context as well. Julika, will you speak to the particulars? Yeah, so it wasn't so much a pressure experience as much as the board itself was questioning, like, is this the right time? Is this the right time to move forward with this process and to put it in the annual packet and to bring it to a vote? And um, I, I think it was really wise of the board to decide to not make that decision in a vacuum. And so what we did was we reached out to the members of the UUMA who have been historically um, most underserved, who are living with marginalized identities. And we said to them, we had Facebook conversations, we had town hall meetings, and we said, what do you think? Is this the right time for us to continue with this? Is this, is this too much? Are we all just stretched beyond belief? Because yes, of course, we are all stretched beyond belief. But how are you feeling? And it was unanimous. Everyone said, this needs to move forward. This needs to be completed. And it was very powerful, very powerful for me to be hosting those conversations and to receive the blessing, but also the charge. You know, like you get this done, you do this, this needs to happen. We 
have been waiting for these changes for too long. And of course, I share those identities, right? So I have also been waiting for too long. So they, they, it was received on fertile ground, shall we say, because I agree and I wanted to move forward. But I didn't want to move forward just because I wanted to. I really wanted to have a sense of what does a collective say? The other thing that's true is all of the work around the guidelines revisions was complete before the pandemic started. So we did the study guide revision. We, we did the study guide work, the chapter conversations, the cluster conversations in the fall. The feedback was submitted at the end of January. The, com the committees did this revision work in February. I mean, Matthew, you did do some fantastic last minute formatting and changing of things, but like, and I appreciate you for that work. But f except for that final sort of Word work, like on, on, I mean, on Microsoft Word is what I mean. All of the emotional work, all of the considerations, all of the conversations had already occurred. All the feedback had already been received and incorporated. So why wouldn't we move forward? Like, what, why, why, why not complete this process that so many of us are hungry for and ready for? Um, and, and I guess I, I, the, the last thing I want to say is that we have adjusted ministry days to reflect the fact that we are all having different experiences with this pandemic and have different amounts of spoons. So you can participate minimally in ministry days. You can even just vote on these guidelines revisions without attending anything else. And we will be sharing the information on how to do that with our UMA members when it gets closer to that time. If you already know how you feel about these guidelines revisions and you're ready to vote, you don't need to come talk about it. You can just vote. And one of the things that the online situation is giving us is it's giving us more time. So we're actually going to break up the annual meeting into three parts. And there's going to be time for folks to have small groups discussions. There's going to be a Q&A with the guidelines committee members. So there's more room for people to understand what's happening. And the final thing I'll say is that we are currently having weekly Q&A sessions on Wednesdays for folks who are catching up, are coming on to this guidelines conversation right now and are not clear. And so we at the UMA, we really want to be transparent and we want to give as many opportunities as possible for people to get clear. But I actually think that there's opportunities in this shift to the online for us to get this done in a good way. So it's a simple yes or no vote then this GA? There's no additions, amendments, all of that stuff? Okay, I can't speak to that. I can speak to that. Um, it could be a simple vote, yes. Um, that vote on the proposals made by both, will be two votes, one for the ethics uh, committee's recommendations, one for the accountability committee's recommendations. There could be amendments made from the floor. If those amendments pass and they are substantial changes, then that would require another year of study. Um, so uh, that's the situation. Um, I will say um, also about the online piece and the going ahead piece um, question, um, and this cycles into the third and last sort of significant um, change or uh, important change we made in the draft, is how important it is for us to get at the culture change that we will make revisions on a regular basis. It will not be every five years we have a guidelines committee and do a thing. This is going to be that the right that the good officers with right relations specialty and the UMA exec and the UMA board and others will talk regularly and it's in the requirements now and propose changes on an annual basis. You know, this language is causing confusion, so let's get clear about it. We're discovering that this has an unintended consequence and so we want to fix it. Like we need to be constantly doing this. And so it needs, we need to lower the temperature about making revisions so that we can make the habit of continuing to grow rather than think we got it right. So in that spirit, one thing that we did is um, one idea we think is really important is um, getting some common understanding and accountability between religious professional bodies and the UUA, uh, the Ministerial Fellowship Committee. Um, the Fellowship Committee doesn't feel like it ha currently has the um, capacity and, and clarity about accountability that they really feel like they need to have. There are places where we need to work together. And so we talked about a common ethics panel. And we put that in the first proposal. It's not ready yet. 
the groups are still talking, they're figuring things out, they're making great progress. Um, but folks didn't want to vote on something that wasn't ready, and, which makes a ton of sense. So we've taken those parts out and replaced them with the current body. It doesn't work as well. There's some gaps and some holes that happen because it's not ready, but we should vote when it's ready. And so we'll just, we'll keep learning. So we took that stuff out um, and we put in either it goes to the UMA board or um, gets reported to the Office of Ethics and Safety of the UA, depending on what the situation is. Um, but that we're continuing to do the work. So this is a, a reparative change to get things right, but it also sets up future changes that will be necessary and processes to continue learning and growing um, as we do. So last year, uh, there was a group that submitted an alternative proposal and, and was pretty upset. Has there been conversation and, and do you feel like um, some of the tension has loosened with um, further exploration and the understanding that this is an ongoing process and all of that? Or does, it, does this still feel tense? I, I don't have any barometer. I mean, you, you've put the new re the revisions back out, right? They're back Absolutely. out. And I, I've seen nothing about them anywhere uh, in any ministerial groups, which was not the case last year, which could speak to COVID overwhelm or it could speak to the fact that people feel like they were heard well. Yeah, we haven't seen that yet either. That could change. I think I'll, I'll say this and I wonder what, you know, Walter thinks about this and was Angelica, that the concerns that were expressed in the electronic feedback and in the, the study groups, the chapter sessions, um, there were a, a sort of set of them. So one was, we don't think the UMA should do accountability at all. I think that's a small number of our members, um, and we think the vast majority are very much in agreement that we should be in the business. A lot of the concerns were addressed in the revisions about authority for right relations guide and how that works and good officers so we've taken care of that the prematureness of voting on a common ethics panel when the proposals aren't ready you know some other things that we sort of fixed um there is a concern about the relationship between um uh, the freedom of the pulpit and these rules that i think we need to keep talking about it's a polity question that i think is interesting but i don't feel like there's a huge upswell about that um, so I, I think we listened, um, and made changes for clarification that did not change the substance, um, that hopefully put people at ease. And I think people are also getting that it will be iterative. And if it's not right the first year and we see a big problem, then we'll fix it. Um, but Walter, I'm curious if you're hearing anything about. Um, the majority of the feedback we've gotten, and it was obviously like most feedback from a segment, a small segment or, or a minority, let me say that way, segment of the population has been tremendously supportive. Um, I, I think that um, there, are, there are a couple different levels of analysis, it seems to me. One significant issue, it seems to me, is this whole notion of what's the role of the UUMA? And do they have authority, quote unquote, to make large decisions for the body, as it were, as opposed to you folks are just there to support me as a minister. Um, so, so there's the level of what's the role of the UUMA is part of what's behind some of the questioning. I think like any change, there's also an issue of fear. I think people have some amount of fear of being punished. Um, and I think that's reflective of the kind of cultural change we're in the process of trying to make. And that it's not about punishment, it's about covenant. Um, so I think those are the levels of issues more than, and I think those, those issues get played out on, around content. Um, but my sense is that people are increasingly getting to a place where, let me say one other thing that just came back to me, and that is that there's some level of expectation, and I, to name it, comes out of white culture, that we do this once and it comes out perfect and it's right. Um, and it's legalese. Um, and that ain't the reality. 
And we're trying to move into a whole different culture shift where this is really about covenant, it's about relationship, and it's about things growing and building on itself. I don't know if that's helpful and particularly responsive to the question, but I think the fundamental issues behind it is what's the definition of the UUMA? Um, and again, should they or anybody have authority over telling me how I should be? Um, is, is at base of a lot of that. I know that um, we've, we've had a lot of people commenting in the questions that we haven't been able to get to. People have really particular experiences and concerns, and I'm sorry, we've, we're just trying to cover a lot of ground here. I did want to mention, though, Aisha, you're on the Shared Accountability Panel, and I know that... No, um, I, Christina Rivera and Melissa Carvel-Zeem are on the Shared yeah. Ethics Panel. I was just lifting up because someone had asked about uh, um, between professional groups, and and I think the reality is I do want to name because Walter, what you brought up, what everybody's bringing up, um, should the UUMA hold ministers accountable? You can't not because historically the UUMA has protected some pretty bad behavior, uh, pretty abusive, problematic behavior. Not UUMA as a body saying we are going, rather the um, good offices. There, there's been so much harm done because of the power, both within the UUA and with the UUMA. So there's, to me, to say, you know, for the folks saying, should the UUMA do this, is like, so you just want to continue holding power and causing harm with zero accountability. So, and I want to name, I'm not on the shared panel, Melissa Carvel-Zemer, Sarah Janine Gelsinger, and Christina Rivera are the steering committee. Are you yes. So the work, the work of that um, committee that, that Aisha is referencing is um, uh, shared work between all of the UU professional organizations. So Loretta, UUMA, UUSC, AUUM, uh, UUAMP, and uh, AUUA. The community ministers, yeah. Yeah, the UUSCM. Um, and so, um, what that work is doing is taking all of the existing guidelines of all of the existing community um, professional organizations and looking at areas of commonality and areas of individuality. And the areas of commonality, um, we will draft and propose to those organizations as a shared common code of conduct or guidelines or ethics, we're, we're not sure what the title will be. And then all of those individual organizations would have areas uh, addenda to that um, so that there's a shared understanding of how we will be with each other, how we will be joyfully with each other, but also how we will be accountable to each other. And that's something that's been missing, um, you know, for, for quite a, a long time. Um, so I think that goes back to answering some of the questions in the chat. Um, all of these things are happening kind of in parallel right now. And uh, to Walter's point, you know, it's not going to be perfect. Like the first time out of the gate, we are not going to be perfect. We have no interest in trying to be perfect. Um, we have interest in trying to create a, a way of being in an accountable relationship, loving faithful, accountable relationship with each other as religious professionals. Well, thanks. That's a nice way to end. Any of our guests have something you really didn't get to say that you really want to say before we wrap up? We're at the top of the hour. Thank I'll just you say so if, you are a, if you are a member of the UMA, make sure to read the materials. And uh, Julica mentioned that there is a uh, link that I assume Antonia has put over into the CLF with answers to questions and links to pertinent documents. Is that available for everyone to read or just UUMA members? I think it's just UUMA members. Is that right, Melissa? Yeah, it's just UUMA members for now. Um, we can look into sharing more information as this proceeds. Okay, terrific. Next week is our 300th show. What? <laughs> <Woo -hoo! laughs> 
And we're delighted that the Commission on Institutional Change will be back with us to share more of their recommendations. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for hosting us. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.